Turn with me to the book of Romans chapter 4. This is the next to last message in our study of Romans 3 and 4. Um, I will uh, preach this one this morning on verses 18 through 22. Um, Tonight, uh, I will be speaking at First Baptist Gibsonville, uh, giving a presentation on uh, the Romania trip that we plan to take next summer and inviting them to participate with us in that. And so tonight, Brother Merle will be preaching the word to us here at Mount Hermon. Next Sunday morning will be our last message on Romans 3 and Romans 4. And uh, following our normal pattern, we will then move back to Genesis. We will pick up with the story of, uh, of Isaac and particularly Jacob and uh, spend some months there learning from Jacob's life. And then after some time there, we'll move back to Romans 5 and Romans 6. And so that's sort of the, the, the long-term plan of what's ahead of us. Um, But here we are now, Romans 4, and uh, we're going to begin reading in verse 18, and I'm going to read through uh, verse 22. So Romans 4, beginning in verse 18. Speaking of Abraham. In hope, he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Let me begin this morning with a question. You consider this question, you see what you think the correct answer to this question is. Here is the question. How much faith must a person have to be saved? Let me ask it again. How much faith must a person have to be saved? There are degrees of faith. We, we know that there are degrees of faith. Verse 20 says that Abraham grew strong in his faith, meaning that there's such a thing as strong faith, and by implication there's such a thing as weak faith. In fact, in Romans 14, Paul will talk at length about disputes that happen in a local church setting between those who are strong in faith and those who are weak in faith. In the Gospels, Jesus sometimes speaks to His disciples saying, O you of little faith. And yet at other times, He speaks to people of their great faith. And Indeed, He said to one Roman centurion, With no one in Israel have I found such faith. And so there's no doubt that there's degrees of faith. So how much must a person have to be saved? Well, the answer, praise God, is that our salvation does not depend upon the measure of our faith. A person who truly believes on Jesus Christ, 
Though that person's faith be feeble, though that person's faith be frail, if there is real faith present at all, it is true of that person that that faith is counted as righteousness in the sight of God. A person with little faith, but real God-given faith, just small in measure, is just as saved, just as justified in the sight of God as someone whose faith is robust and mighty and full. Matthew 12.20, Matthew quotes the prophet Isaiah concerning our Lord Jesus Christ. And Matthew, quoting Isaiah, says of Jesus, A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not quench. And these are two pictures of a person whose faith is feeble, whose whose faith is frail. Imagine a bruised reed. It's the picture of a reed in, in shallow water. And it's been injured. Maybe the, the top half of the reed is, is hanging low. And, and if somebody were just to touch the reed, the, the top half would just break completely off. The other picture is of a, a smoldering wick. The, the fire has almost entirely gone out. If someone were to just walk by this wick, the air from their passing would put the fire out. And yet Isaiah says of our Lord that a bruised breed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not quench. He is a tender and a gentle Messiah. Though a person's faith be ever so small, be ever so feeble, be ever so frail, indeed on the verge of disappearing altogether, yet Christ will not break that person. The reed will be strengthened and the fire increased either in this life or the next. The dying thief had little time to grow in his faith. Many a dying person has found faith in Jesus in the last moments of their lives and died with a newborn, infant, small faith. But the Gospel does not say that we must reach some level of faith, some degree of faith to be saved. All that the Gospel requires is that some measure of real God-given faith be present in our hearts. Now that doesn't mean that growing in faith is unimportant. If your faith isn't growing, it's dying. What's more, while your salvation does not depend upon the degree of your faith, your usefulness to Jesus does depend upon the degree of your faith. Your growth in personal holiness depends upon the degree of your faith. Your own spiritual happiness, your ability to bless others, these and many other things do depend on the measure, the degree of your faith. You want to grow in your faith. But your standing before God does not depend on the measure of your faith. There is something, however, that your salvation does depend upon. It's not the measure of your faith. It's the nature of your faith. You see, while it doesn't matter how much faith you have when it comes to justification, it does matter that your faith in God be the real thing. It does matter that your faith be the genuine article because there are counterfeits. True faith is a work of God in our hearts. True faith is a divine gift placed into our very souls. But there is such a thing as false faith. 
something that has its origin in man, something that we work up in ourselves apart from the work of God. It's it's a faith of our own doing. It's not a gift from God. The Bible speaks of these counterfeit, non-saving, non-God-given kinds of faiths. And the Bible helps us identify them so that we don't be deceived. For example, faith without works is a counterfeit kind of faith. A faith that professes Jesus as Savior and Lord, but does not result in love, does not result in obedience. You can be sure that is not real, God-given, saving faith. It's not the real thing. A faith that does not last is a counterfeit faith. When man works up faith in his own heart, it usually doesn't last long and it usually doesn't last through difficult trials. But the faith that God gives, real sustaining, saving faith, sustains a person through trials. It endures. If a person professes Jesus as Savior and Lord, but then later leaves off that profession and and leaves Christ and and rejects Christ and enters into a totally different lifestyle, we can be sure that this person's faith was not the God-given kind. God doesn't do shabby work. And those in whom He begins the work of faith, He brings it to completion. Well, there is a third kind of counterfeit faith, and it's a kind that this passage helps us with. This third kind of counterfeit faith is a faith that is not set upon the true God. You see, a person can believe in a God earnestly, seriously, to the very bottom of their soul, and yet not be saved. You see, it is crucial. It is crucial that a person believe in the true God. It is crucial that a person's faith be placed on the proper object, namely the God who is and not a God who is a myth or a lie. It is crucial that our faith be placed in the One who created the world, the One who works miracles, the One who is omnipotent and faithful and does the impossible. You see, I don't want you to get mixed up here. Paul, in these verses, speaks about the faith of Abraham that did not waver. The faith of Abraham that grew strong and believed God despite incredible negative circumstances. It is possible that you could read verses 18 through 22 and think that what Paul was saying is that you must have this degree of faith to be saved. Do you see verse 22? You see verse 22? That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. I don't want you to think for a moment that Paul was saying that because Abraham's faith was strong, it was counted to him as righteousness. The that in verse 22 is not Abraham's faith was strong and mighty and robust and it was because it was so strong that his faith was counted as righteousness. It's not what Paul was saying here. Rather, the that of verse 22 has to do with the nature of Abraham's faith. Abraham's faith was set upon the true God. The God who does the impossible. The God who is faithful. The God whose word can be trusted. And it's because Abraham's faith was set on that God that his faith was counted as righteousness. 
What Paul is doing in these verses is teaching us about the nature of faith. He's teaching us what real faith looks like by drawing our attention to someone who by God's grace came to excel at faith. If I want to show a young child what a tomato looks like, what a tomato looks like, I'm going to try and find one that looks as healthy and as bright red and as well-rounded as possible for them to see what a tomato looks like. I'm not going to look for a bruised tomato or a warped tomato or a disfigured tomato. Those warped tomatoes are still tomatoes. Those bruised and disfigured tomatoes, they're, they're still tomatoes. But when I'm showing a child what a tomato looks like, I want to show them the ideal first. I want them to see what tomatoes ought to look like. Well, that's much of what Paul was doing here. He's drawing our attention to Abraham, a man who by God's grace did come to have strong faith. But he's not drawing our attention to Abraham's strong faith because he's telling us that we must have strong faith to be saved. He's drawing our attention to Abraham's strong faith so that we can see a realistic, ideal picture of what faith looks like. Your faith and my faith may never be as strong as Abraham's was. We may be the warped ones. We may be the disfigured tomatoes, so to speak. But praise God, as long as we have in any measure the kind of faith that Abraham had, we are safe and secure in the arms of Abraham's God. And by the way, let us remember that Abraham did not start out with a robust faith. Here is the man who lied about Sarah being his wife twice and gave her into the arms of another man. Here is Abraham who slept with Sarah's handmaiden in order to help God out with the promise of a child. Here is a man who laughed when God told him that he and Sarah were going to have a son together. You see, it wasn't that Abraham never had any struggles. It wasn't that Abraham never had any doubts. But over time and through many experiences and by the grace of God, Abraham's faith grew more and more until it became the awesome thing that it did. The model for us who are Abraham's offspring by faith. From the moment Abraham first believed, he knew that God was a God who could be trusted. From the moment Abraham truly believed, he believed in a God who was faithful. But like freshly poured cement slowly drying and hardening. It took many years for Abraham's faith to become the firm, solid thing that it eventually did become. That's how it is with us too. So if the point of this passage is to teach us what real faith looks like, what does real, God-given, saving faith look like? Well, I think we see three answers in this passage, so here they are. Number one, saving faith takes God at His word. Saving faith takes God at His word. Look at verse 18. Verse 18. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. In hope, he believed against hope That is, humanly speaking, there was no hope. Abraham had no earthly reason to even imagine that God's promise of offspring would come true. 
He was too old. Sarah was was too old and had been barren when she was younger. And yet in the face of an empty human hope, Abraham hoped in God. And what was his hope? What what was this eager expectation of a child based upon? It was based upon the Word of God. God had said it. And so Abraham believed it. There is nothing more sure in this world than the Word of God. There is nothing more certain. What would you submit as being more sure than the Word of God? Some would say that science is more sure than the Word of God, but the problem with science is that we learn about science through scientists. And scientists have limited tools and limited minds and and depraved hearts. Surely the Scriptures are more reliable than even scientists. Others would say that our human reasoning is more sure than the Word of God. But again, our reasoning is based on what we know and our ability to think rationally about what we know and in an objective mind, all of which have been affected by the fall. The truth is, we know little. Our ability to think rationally has been darkened by a love for self and a a love for sin. We are certainly not objective people. We're not fair and balanced. That's not us. And if we think we are, we're self-deceived. Scientists would have said that Abraham should never expect a child at his age with that wife. Reasoning would have said there's no logical way that Abraham can have a child. But God's Word said differently. And God's Word proved true. Now if saving faith takes God at His Word, what implications does that have for you. First, you must know God's Word. We cannot take God at His Word if we don't know what God has said. Right? So, so we must read God's Word and hear God's Word and sing God's Word or we're to hide God's Word in our hearts so that we know it and we know it well. And then we're to believe what we know. We must believe what God has said even when it runs contrary to what we may have previously thought. Maybe we've thought one thing for 60 years and then suddenly we discover in our Bibles that God would have us to think differently or that God would have us to act differently. Will we take Him at His word? Are we willing to submit ourselves to Him and to say, though I've thought this way for all these years, here is God's word on the matter. Therefore, I will believe it and I will change my mind. I'm not going to try and change God's. Taking God at His word means believing what God says, even if it seems unpleasant. Praise God, so much of what God does say to us in His word is very pleasant. So much of what God has revealed to us is is glorious and wonderful, but there are unpleasant parts. Even those unpleasant parts become pleasant when we take the big view and we see how everything connects to the glory of God. But surely there are times in the Christian life when we learn what God has said about a matter and we wish He had said something else. We wish He had said something differently. We wish He hadn't said that. We may think to ourselves, why? Why did God have to say that? Will you still take Him at His word then? 
I wonder, is there some area of God's Word that you refuse to believe? If there is some area of God's Word that you refuse to believe, then you should be concerned about your faith. Because it isn't the nature of true God-given faith to doubt something that is clearly revealed in the Bible. True faith takes God at His Word. And so the Bible speaks of a real personal creature called Satan. It tells us that Jesus Himself was tempted by Satan. That that conversations were had between the two. We're told that Satan came into Judas Iscariot to accomplish Jesus' betrayal. We're told that Satan was this serpent in, in the Garden of Eden that tempted mankind to sin. We're told that Satan will will get his comeuppance when Jesus returns and casts him into eternal torment. There are many things about Satan that the Bible does not reveal to us, things which we do not know, but the Bible is very clear that there is a real being called Satan. That's not pleasant. But do you take God at His word on the matter anyway? Because it's the word of God. Similar things could be said about that place called hell. Hell is mysterious to us. But there can be no doubt that the Bible speaks of such a place. There can be no doubt that it is a terrible place, a a place of God's wrath, a, a place where sinners are righteously tormented forever. Do you take God's Word on that matter? What about the Bible's teaching concerning the future resurrection of the dead? Jesus Himself said that there is coming an hour when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and will come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. Those who have done wicked to the resurrection of judgment. This means that we have God's Word that there is coming a day when that cemetery behind our church is going to have graves split open and dead people will come out of the graves with resurrected bodies. Do you believe such things? In the 21st century, do you believe such things? Well, you should. Because you have God's Word. On the matter. On and on we could go. We could talk about the Bible's teaching concerning predestination, or the roles of men and women, or disciplining our children, or the biblical doctrine that even the vilest of sinners can be saved by turning to Jesus Christ. All of these things are very politically incorrect beliefs. Do you doubt these things? Do you reject these things? On on what grounds would you reject these things when they are written clearly in the Word of God? God has been gracious to bring bring us His Word in black and white, in a language we can understand. And we know that our God is good and wise and trustworthy. We know that our God does everything well. We know that if there's anything that seems unpleasant to us, God must have a purpose for it. So will we not trust and believe all that God has told us in His Word? I could say more. Let's move on. Second point. Second point about true God-given faith is that it does not doubt God's ability. 
True God-given saving faith does not doubt God's ability. This is particularly clear in verse 21. Uh, let's begin reading in verse 20. Look with me in verse 20. We'll read verses 20 and 21. Speaking of Abraham, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Man-made faith puts limits on God. Abraham's faith was heaven-made. He believed that God could do anything. Sometimes we'll look at where something was made and make a judgment about it, right? What? That, that TV was made in that country? Bet it lasts you a year. Right? Oh, that, that TV was made in that country? They make good stuff, right? Well, man-made faith is cheap faith. It does not last. It does not hold up. It isn't big enough. Man-made faith's view of God is too small. But the faith that is made in heaven... The faith that is given to us by God Himself, placed into our souls, that kind of faith has the right view of God. And what is the right view of God? That God is able to do whatever He wants, whenever He wants, however He wants, with whoever or whatever He wants, for whatever purpose He wants. Or to put it differently, our God is in the heavens and He does whatever He pleases. Or to put it differently, nothing is impossible with God. This is the right view of the God. This is the God in whom we are to believe. We use the word omnipotence to speak of God's power. Omni, meaning all. Potence, meaning power or ability. Our God has all ability. Power is used as a name for our God. Power so describes God that at times He is simply called power. For example, we're told that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of power. That is, the right hand of God. God's power is intrinsic to who He is. Paul says in Ephesians 3, 20-21, Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Saving faith does not doubt the ability of God. So check yourself. Is there something that God has said that He will do which you doubt He is capable of doing? Which promises that God has given to you do you think are going to be the hardest for Him to fulfill? Does His promise that one day He's going to raise up your dead body from the grave and make it new, does that seem too hard for Him? Has God not done it before? What about His promise that He's going to create a new heavens and a new earth? Does that sound too hard for God? He's created heavens and earth before. And last time, when He created heavens and earth, it was ex nihilo. It was out of nothing. This time, we're told, He's going to take the old heavens and the old earth and make them new. So last time seems harder than this time. Last time, He had nothing to work with. And do we really think that last time was too hard for Him? (laughs) I doubt it. Somehow I get the impression that the reason God rested on the seventh day was not because He was tired and sweaty, but because He was setting an example for 
us puny people who do need to rest. What about the promise that God will work all things for the good of His people? Are you in a situation right now where you doubt God's ability to bring good out of this mess? Are you thinking, surely, surely no good can come from this? Is your situation worse than that of Joseph in Genesis? Did he not bring a terrible situation in Joseph's life to great good? Or what about Jesus Christ Himself? As God poured out His righteous wrath upon His Son and Jesus was tormented both in His body and in His soul at the cross, surely we would say nothing good can come from this. This is the most horrendous moment in human history. And yet the most horrendous moment in human history was also the most beautiful moment in human history. The ugliest moment in human history was the greatest moment in human history. If God has succeeded time and again in showing that He turns bad to good, do you doubt Him now in your situation? Have you forgotten that God has proven Himself faithful in the lives of Christians for literally century after century after century? There are millions of Christians already in heaven who can testify God is faithful. He does bring all to good. Will you trust Him? Will you doubt His ability? Saving faith takes God at His word. Saving faith believes He is able. Finally, number three. Saving faith prevails in the midst of difficult circumstances. Saving faith prevails. This is what separates it from human non-saving faith. Saving faith prevails in the midst of difficult circumstances. Look at verses 19 and 20. Verses 19 and 20. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Please understand when Paul says that Abraham did not waver concerning the promise of God, that he did not weaken in his faith, it doesn't mean that Abraham had no struggles. It doesn't mean that Abraham's had no temptations to doubt, no, no moments of questioning. We know that Abraham did experience those things. We saw them in our, in our own study of his life. We saw his foibles and his mess-ups. And Paul himself says Abraham grew strong, which implies a process of growing. So it isn't that faith was just easy as pie for Abraham and everybody else like you and me just have to struggle. It's not like that. No, the meaning is that Abraham too experienced all these reasons for doubt, all these reasons for questioning, all of these reasons for turmoil turmoil in his soul, but he overcame them by faith as he held on to the promise of God. His faith endured. His faith remained. These verses tell us that as Abraham's faith held on in the midst of all these earthly reasons why he should doubt God, two things happened. One, his faith grew. It's the same thing with our spiritual lives as it is with our physical lives. When it comes to your body, the more you use a muscle, the bigger it gets. 
The more you exercise a muscle, the stronger it becomes. Well, it's the same way with faith. The more we use our faith, the more we exercise it, put it to action in the midst of more and more difficult trials, the stronger it becomes, it grows. This is why the best way to grow in your faith is to keep believing every single thing that God has said to you in the midst of every single circumstance that God brings your way. Keep believing and your faith will grow. The second thing that we see that happened is Abraham's faith held on was that God was glorified. He brought glory to God. As Abraham held on to God's word, God himself became more precious to Abraham. Abraham began to love God more, to have higher thoughts of God. Abraham exalted his God in his heart and with his lips and with his actions. There's simply no other way around it. The more you trust God in difficult moments and watch God prove himself faithful, the more you will fall in love with him the more important He will become to you, the more precious He will be to your soul. How do we glorify God? By believing on His holy character. By believing His Word. By holding fast to what He has said, even when it seems hard or difficult. And watching Him prove Himself true. And so we close with verse 22. That is why His faith was counted to Him as righteousness. Because his faith was so strong? No. But because it was the real thing. Because it was faith set on the true God who can overcome every obstacle and work the impossible. Abraham took God at his word, doubted not God's ability, and prevailed over difficult circumstances. Abraham's faith was a faith rooted in God's spoken truth. A faith focused on God's glorious character and a faith that endured rather than caving in. This is a picture of true, saving, God-given faith. And so you see what the application is. Is this the faith you have? Is this the kind of faith with which you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and on the God you claim to serve? May God give to us and sustain in us this kind of faith. And may God give us the ability to see many, many others come to have it as well. Let's pray. I would urge us now into a time of self-examination to just consider our faith in the Lord Jesus and whether it's the real thing.